Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 2137. And here's your forecast for Friday, December 1st, and Saturday, December 2nd. Friday, mostly in the clouds, under mostly cloudy skies. Isolated snow showers early, then afternoon mixed precipitation likely. Snow accumulations of trace to two inches, with a high in the upper 20s. Winds west at 50 to 70 miles per hour early, 45 to 60 miles per hour midday, and 35 to 50 miles per hour later. And the wind chill will be 5 to 15 above. Friday night, in the clouds with snow. Additional snow accumulations of trace to 2 inches, the low in the lower 20s. Winds west at 35 to 50 miles per hour early. 45 to 60 miles per hour with gusts up to 70 miles per hour around midnight and 25 to 40 miles per hour later. Winter will be falling to 5 below to 5 above. And then Saturday, in the clouds with snow, possibly mixing with sleet and freezing rain during the afternoon. Additional snow accumulations of trace to 2 inches, Possible ice accumulation from freezing rain of a trace to a tenth of an inch. Highs will be in the upper 20s. Winds will be southwest at 25 to 40 miles per hour, decreasing to 15 to 30 miles per hour later. Wind chills rising to 5 to 15 above. From the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. We are back from Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Did you have your turkey? <laughs> yeah, we sure did. Yeah, the folks came over and uh, we stuffed ourselves. Had a really nice lazy day watching 
that new Squid Games show on Netflix. It was fun. But I How think fan- it- that game is fantastic. Yeah, you see the new show? I've been watching it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just yeah, watched yeah. the newest episode. It's awesome. Yeah, it's wicked cool. Can't wait for the uh, next uh, batch to come out. So that that was fun. And I think I gained like three pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. All that yeah. weight I lost, I think, is back. <laughs> right. Um, yep. All right. So we've got um, we've got Ken here. He's just working through some technical stuff. Um, are you all set, Ken? You want to say hi? Hi. Glad to, glad to be here. Hey. All right. All right, welcome, welcome from Texas, right? You in Texas right now? Yeah, Houston, Texas. All right, well, it's warmer down there than it is up here, I can guarantee you that. (laughs) So, all right, stop. So quickly, before we do the intro, I just wanted to pick off a story that it came by that I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you can do this or not, stop, but when we're doing the edit, if you can put the Sopranos, like... um, entrance uh, intro music on behind me that would be great but five men charged with murder uh apparently these are five new york city residents that uh apparently killed the guy and brought him up to twin mountain new hampshire and buried the body somewhere in the forest mm, wow that's crazy so, yeah it's a wild indictment so i'll include this in the show notes if people want to read the thing i was looking for in the indictment this is a grand jury indictment i wanted to get more details about exactly where they buried the body in twin mountain but can you imagine like going hiking and you see like five gangsters like burying a body somewhere yeah i know you just never know uh (laughs) new new fear is unlocked yeah so any interesting details in this indictment so this happened in July on July nineteenth, twenty twenty three. This is it looks like it is a criminal enterprise out of Queens, New York. So Chinese nationals. It looks like they were doing a ketamine um, drug dealing ring. So ketamine, I think, is called Special K. It's mm-hmm. like one of those drugs that they use at like raves and stuff. So you probably know all about that stuff, Stomp. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, yes. yes. That's your world, but um, I don't know. Apparently, this guy owed money, and they they asked him to come to a restaurant. They they met him out and then got him somewhere in New York. It's unclear when he actually was killed, but somehow they convened a grand jury, and um, I guess they the grand jury went from July thirty first of uh, this year for a couple of days, and then they've they've arrested five uh suspects yeah and one of the guys nicknames is little fatty okay and uh then there's some other names that are really hard to pronounce but i'll include it in the show notes but i just thought that was a new fear unlocked like you're just you're minding your own business you're going hiking middle sugar bush or something like that and you've got these gangsters burying a body in the middle of the trail yeah yeah well it happens certainly does crazy all right Yep. All right, Stomp. So welcome to episode 131 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we are joined by Ken Lindblom from Texas Search and Rescue. So Ken is a volunteer with Texar and has a background in emergency and disaster management. So his particular area of interest is medical care for working canine dogs. So Ken's done a couple of research projects on canine operational medicine, and he's joining us tonight to explain the who, what, why, and how of developing a formal 
pre-hospital medical program for search and rescue canines. So to put this simply, basically, when rescue dogs need medical help, how do SAR teams get enough medical training to make sure that the dogs are treated until they can get to a medical facility? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot more to it, but that is what we're going to dive into. So in mm-hmm. addition to the canine segment with Ken, we'll be ranking the AMC huts, recapping our recent live episode at Reckless, we have follow-ups on eye protection that we talked about, not getting your eyes sunburned, a story about spite houses, a story about a very loyal Jack Russell Terrier, uh, some recent hikes on the Belknaps, Kinsmans, and a bushwhack on Mount Deception. We'll talk about winter hiking plans, and if we have time, we'll cover some recent search and rescue news. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. <laughs> This is Ben Pease from Hiking Buddies. We are a 501c3 nonprofit committed to reducing avoidable tragedies through education, impactful projects, and fostering a community of support. You can find out more at hikingbuddies.org. We wanted to say thank you to those who have supported our mission, and most importantly, say thanks to those who speak up, who ask questions, and who are willing to provide guidance and assistance on the trails when needed. You embody what it means to be a hiking buddy. And now, for all my newer hikers out there, here's this episode's Hiking Buddies Quick Tip. For every hike you plan, you should know your bailout routes before you go. Know where you can get down, where you will come out, and how you will get back to your vehicle. Preparing for a worst-case scenario is excellent practice. Stomp. So I wanted to put pressure on you immediately. Uh oh. Uh oh. I'm ready to rank rank the AMC huts in order of good to bad. Good to bad. Wow. Yeah. So Ken, just so you know what we're talking about here, um, in New Hampshire where we focus on, there's the Appalachian Mountain Clubs and the section of New Hampshire that the Appalachian Trail runs through. There's a series of mountain huts where um, hikers can basically stay in the wilderness. These huts usually, they have caretakers, and there's usually like maybe 30 to 100 sleeping spots, and then they offer food and stuff like that. Um, and they're, they're sort of a, like a staple for, for hiking. So I'm, what I'm asking Stomp to do is to rate his favorite to least favorite in order. Well, I'm, can I ask a question there? Yeah, go yeah. Ahead. It, it, that sounds like the sort of thing. It kind of makes me think of rest stops. Is uh, is that the sort of thing that invites uh, drug use and crime? Uh, no, no. There's no no drug use or crime. It's it's essentially. Um, if you're a purist in the wilderness, you sort of feel like they shouldn't be there and people should be doing like, you know, backcountry camping and things like that. So it's a little bit of a, a luxury way for people to go outside and experience, um, you know, camping without having to bring a tent or anything like that. Like they have sleeping pads and things like that that you can, you, you know, so it's sort of a halfway between camping and, and staying in a hotel. Um, and it also okay. serves for day hikers 
you know, you can get water there or you can you can step inside to get out of the, the cold weather. But they're really deep. I mean, they're usually like a couple miles in, so you have to hike to them. There's no hmm. easy access. So that avoids okay. the riffraff for the most part. Although there was a case where somebody had taken a lot of acid a couple of years ago and climbed up on the roof and was screaming at people naked. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that does happen. But uh, <laughs> Not the kind of nature you're probably looking for out there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he had a rough time. But but stop. First, I wanted to know, what's the criteria you're going to use, and then what is your order? Sure. So, I mean, my criteria would be uh, less crowds or less crowding, a, a feeling of spaciousness. Hospitality is never a question with the, uh, the hut, so I won't include that. Uh, views and uh, not necessarily above tree line views, but just the surroundings themselves. And um, so, re- that feel of remoteness. I, I really look for the, that feeling that you're in the middle of nowhere. So those are a few of my criteria that I would judge these by. Okay. And uh, I'm doing this off the cuff. So do you want number one, my favorite? Yeah. yeah and then we'll favorite. go from there. Okay. Yeah. My favorite is Carter Notch Hut. Okay. That's number one. Number two would be Lonesome Lake. Okay. Number three is Lake of the Clouds. Okay. Number four would be Greenleaf. Okay. Uh, then Madison Spring, um, Galehead, Zealand, and then Mitzbah. I've never been to Mitzbah, so I really don't have an opinion on Mitzbah. Really? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's interesting. I think that my criteria is the s- similar to yours. So I'm thinking um, uh, views number one, yeah. remoteness number two, and then um, sort of nearby landmarks is number three. So I would say yeah. for me, I would put lonesome number one for me. Wow. Okay. I just feel like that area is just so fantastic. It's right, sure. you know, right below Mount Washington. Um, then I would put Zealand as number two, and the reason I put Zealand as number two is just because it's such a cool, chill area in the nice weather because you can sort of put your hammock out, hang out by that water area there, and it's it's pretty yeah. fun. Mm-hmm. Um, then I would say uh, probably Madison Spring, and I'm writing these down as we're talking, just so that I can put them in the show notes. Uh, and then I would go with, uh, Greenleaf. And so what I got, Lonesome, Zealand, Madison, Greenleaf, um, Gilhead. Sure. Yeah. Nizpah. And then I've got Lonesome. And then Carter Notch is my bottom one. So we're almost the exact opposite. <laughs> That's interesting. So I don't like Carter Notch because I, I, it's just, I don't know, it's just like a very steep hike down to it and then a very steep hike uh, up to it. And then Carter Dome is just underwhelming to me. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. But it's the notch itself is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. When you're coming down from Wildcats and you get that overlook view. Um, but I, a lot of the, the consideration that I, I factored in here uh, was... In winter, I've I've been to most of these places in winter, and of course, as you know, there are only a few that are open in winter, and they're just so romantic and beautiful, and just uh, not crowded. Um, and those top three of mine definitely are just incredible. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I I do agree with that. I think that uh, it is it is cool in the winter, especially Lonesome Lake. Although yeah. when the Boy Scouts hit Lonesome Lake, it's just a nightmare. Yeah, and of course, uh, Lake of the Clouds is not open in the winter, but there is that dungeon underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, had some great memories there. All right. Well, I've got these written down, Stomp, so that we can put them on a little Instagram um, story so people can yell at us for getting them wrong. <laughs> right. All right. All right. Uh, so next article that we have up here, Stomp, you pulled this. Uh, the Auto Road sets a fundraising record. So this is yeah. related to the Northeast Delta Dental Mount Washington Road Race. So Ken, for your... Um, from your your education so in the northeast we have this high peak which is called mount washington it's like 6288 feet high and it's like the highest mountain around and there's a 7.9 mile road that you actually can drive cars up and once a year they have a road race where you can run up so stomp and i have participated in this race a number of years stomp actually did it this year i couldn't do it because i broke my toe right before the race but um we they raised sixty two thousand dollars uh for this race and it's going to support the oral health needs of north country residents which is great Absolutely cool. Yeah. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Coas County Family Health Services. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the road's 7.6 miles, not Um, 7.9. So, uh, but that is, that's good news. So raising a lot of money Mm -hmm. and then stop next up. um, And Ken, I'd be curious to know if you have a lot of these issues, but selfie taking is now considered a public health risk. What is this all about? (laughs) Yeah, it's... Uh, it's a little bit of the obvious. I pulled this out of uh, a Boston station, and uh, we all know that it's a problem. We've seen some crazy things, um, but there's been research that's been done recently out of uh, the University of Sydney, and they have found that uh, this selfie taking is definitely uh, a public health issue. And uh, I don't know what they're going to do about it, but uh, <laughs> it's an interesting. Article and it does reference selfie-related deaths. Now that is an interesting thing because if you do some digging, you can find some horrible videos online about that. And then, of course, we all know the the benign ones where somebody walks into a pothole and things like that. But uh, it's starting to get noticed, which is interesting. Yeah, and it says in this article here, um, and I don't know, maybe this isn't surprising. I got to warn my daughters, but it says that the average age of deaths related to selfies was twenty-two. Right, and that, right. Um, as they drilled wow. down, young females were implicated the most, which I feel like that makes sense. So, does it? I feel like yeah. I feel like they're, they're more likely to take selfies. I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I take selfies every once in a while, but not not very frequently. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, you got to get that dopamine. Yeah, I've I've read about a few of those. I, I haven't heard of it, of anything any big public incidents like that here in uh, in Texas. You know, we get some dementia walkaways, occasionally calls from Big Bend when a hiker goes missing, um, things things of that nature. A kid with autism wanders off, uh, but fortunately, I, I haven't heard. Uh, uh, I haven't heard of too much uh, self-inflicted accidents like that. That's good. Yeah, I I wonder a lot of times, like if there's injury, a lot of times when there's injuries around waterfalls or um, cliffs and things like that, I've we've covered a number of stories where um, it was indicated that people weren't paying attention close to those areas, and you know you you double click into that and you find out that like they you know they were taking photos or you know just weren't 
aware of their surroundings. So I think the phone can be a distraction regardless of whether you're, you know, by a by a cliff or not. It can be dangerous. So um very good stomp. And then um you've got an update here, Stomp. We covered this before, but I think there's more details. So the the current administration, I, I'm assuming this is like the Bureau of Land Management, there's a plan for them to release seven grizzly bears near a rural um, community in, uh, where is this? This is in... Washington. Washington, yeah. yeah. So this is an area that does not have grizzly bears right now, and they're mm-hmm. proposing that they're going to release seven of them. And uh, this is an apex predator, obviously, um, getting put in a new area. And the locals, as you can imagine, are not too thrilled about it. They're worried about their <laughs> livestock, and they're probably worried about themselves. Absolutely. So. Yeah. yeah, it's an interesting thing. So the the struggle goes on between the uh, community members and the government uh, agents. And uh, the plan is to release uh, one every year or so into the rural region where these folks live, and uh, it could disrupt their their cattle, whatever you know their uh, their own personal well being as well. So we'll see what happens with this one, but uh, it's an interesting story. Yeah, and it looks like they've already uh, introduced wolves to this area, um, and it's had an impact on livestock. So it's mostly ranchers, I think, that are pushing back on it. But there's yeah. a, there's some data in here that says that grizzly bears are 20 times more dangerous than black bears and yeah. are well-known for their aggressive fatal mauling. So Government inaction. <laughs> I will specifically avoid any national parks and going backcountry camping if they have grizzlies in them, so... <laughs> I won't be going there. That's oh. awesome. Yeah. Oh, boy. All right. Um, Stomp and Ken, have you guys ever heard of a spite house? Have you ever heard of that? No. What is, what's that? No. Is that, is that anything like a trap house? No, no. It's like, so spite means that you're looking to get revenge. So the best example I can give you is like there's certain houses in cities like New York and Chicago where developers would like take these huge skyscrapers and then you'll see this like little tiny house that's never been sold in between these two skyscrapers because the owner refuses to sell it or um, sometimes there's situations where somebody will, um, you know, they'll have a property where somebody gives it to them, but it's like really... Really narrow and they can't build anything so they build like this super narrow house just to just to be a pain in the neck right so where i live is um it's in the north shore of massachusetts so there's a town next to me called newburyport that has what's called the spite house so it's known as the pink house and stomp i wanted to pull this article just because i thought it was interesting because it yeah. ties with u.s fish and wildlife sure so the story behind the Spite House is that um, in the 1920s, a husband and wife were married, and uh, they went through a divorce. And as part of the divorce settlement, the wife received uh, the rights to have a house built that was the same specifications of the house that she had been living in in downtown Newburyport with her husband. There was no um, information or, or there was no stipulations around where that house would be built. So the house was built on a salt marsh along the Parker River. So this is essentially, um, I think the best way to think about this, Ken, for you down in Texas would be this is sort of like the 
um, the flats down in Galveston, like stick it in the middle of like those, like those, those, um, salt flats down there. Essentially this house was built and, um, prone for flooding and things like that. And the wife was essentially stuck having to, uh, to live in this house where it's like in the middle of nowhere out in the salt marshes, you know, surrounded by like a river and storms and things like that. So, that was the legend around it, and it's been in existence for the last you know hundred years or so. It's been abandoned for like fifty years now. Yeah, I um, know this place. Since, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know it. It's, it's oh, as you sure. enter Plum Island, right? Right. It's, a, it's an iconic photo um, um, prop, I guess is what you would call it. So. Yeah. It's it's been there's been a preservation group that's been trying to like restore it and a couple of times it's been up for demolition. Surprisingly, the um, there was an announcement by U.S. Fish and Wildlife to uh, to demolish it and they gave it basically like a 30 day comment period for people to respond. So the local preservationists are pushing to save this icon so it's a it's an interesting situation where the preservationists are scrambling to try to find like a um, a piece of property that they can trade with fish and wildlife that would be equivalent so that they can take it over so gotcha. but they're they're pissed because fish and wildlife didn't indicate anything around looking to destroy it mm-hmm. and uh, it came out of nowhere so there's a lot of sort of political infighting around it but i thought it was interesting yeah, that is interesting. I've, I've seen it all my life. Going yeah, there. yeah. Now, the funny thing is, is the whole story about the 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 origin story about the the husband and wife being divorced, and him have, building her the house out of spite is actually not true. Mm-hmm. The truth behind it is that the husband had a had a mistress that lived in town. He built the house outside of town where he him and his wife would live with their kid very quickly like he started to uh when they moved in it was only like a week or two when he moved in he started leaving to go work in town left the wife and the kid in the home by themselves she sort of figured like oh you know something's going on eventually she found out that um he was having an affair and uh left to go move in with her family back down in salem mass and they went through a divorce and the husband and his new mistress got married and had a kid and they used the house as like a summer home. So the whole story about it being a spite house was like sort of true, but not really. So gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting legend. <laughs> oh boy. So, but I'll keep everyone updated on what happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He just, uh, he just basically used it to make his wife so miserable that she leave him. So, <laughs> It's pretty awful. Yeah. So that's about spite houses. So, um, all right, Stomp, what else you got? Well, uh, we have a heartwarming story that uh, is about a little pup. Yeah, you want to cover this one? Yeah, this is fantastic. It's really neat. So there's a Jack Russell Terrier uh, in the news, and this pup is a hero. (laughs) It's super cool. Um, The dog... After 72 days of loyal watch, um, was, let me see, she bared her teeth and barked at the hunter who stumbled upon her own his body. So apparently, um, an individual passed, but the dog stayed next to the, uh, the body for that amount of time. It's absolutely amazing. 
Yeah, yeah. So this happened in Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. So it was a 71-year-old hiker went out hiking with his Jack Russell Terrier, uh, Finney. And um, apparently the gentleman's name was Richard Moore. He passed away due to hypothermia and Finney stayed by the body for 72 days until a hunter stumbled on his, uh, upon the scene. Pop. And yeah, I think it, the, the dog lost like half its body weight, but oh, it yeah. stuck by its owner. Yeah, unbelievable. Can yep. you imagine? That's a long I, time. Yeah, it's crazy. So if that happened to you, Stomp, and you had one of your cats with you, do you what do you think the likelihood of the cat sticking around would be? <laughs> very, very low. <laughs> very low. None. Well, yeah. actually, they'd be uh, 10 pounds heavier, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it probably would be. <laughs> yeah, that, that's my thought, too. Yeah, so. too crazy. Ken, what's your take on this story? Uh, the, the dog story? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's um, I, more of a fan of... Uh, German shepherds, myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But you got you got to respect the little guy's um, loyalty, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You uh, you do. Yeah. Is that great. like actually? Let me ask you a question. We're going to get into this eventually, but um, is there any value in small dogs for search and rescue to get into like smaller areas, or is it always just these bigger dogs? So oh, that's that's an interesting question because um, when you start sizing up the dog, uh, you you could bring a small dog in there, but you're not going to see. I've never seen. You're, not, you're probably not going to see like a Papillon or a or you know mm-hmm. something super tiny like that. Um, yeah. You can run you can run larger dogs, but you know the larger dogs they're going to. Uh, they're going to need more more water. Um, they could potentially do differently in heat. Um, mm. They can react differently to age, injury, and environmental factors. Yeah. Um, so I've seen, I've seen most of the dogs I've seen are on the smaller side. I've I've seen a few people start with big dogs, but the handlers that I've uh, worked with or gotten to talk with, they all seem to run uh, like medium sized dogs, like. Okay. Um, like I've got a, we have a, a German Shepherd, um, not a SAR dog, a pet that is like a. My wife says it's called a king size German Shepherd, mm. um, and I've seen German Shepherds on the team, um, but they're not they're not massive uh, German Shepherds like ours. They're you know a couple sizes down. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Because I just figured like if you're if you're in an area where you have like thicker. Um, vegetation, then I would think maybe like a smaller dog might be able to get their way in there. But I'm you know. so I've got a story about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I was on this uh, search. We were looking for um, a prison, prison inmate um, supposedly had knowledge of uh, where a cold uh, of a cold case where a, a child was murdered and buried. And we were out searching this, uh, this dam and it was it was really thick brush in in this dam area, not dam like concrete dam. It's an earthen dam, more like a reservoir. And we're out there hiking through the woods. And uh, the handler that I was working with, he had he had two dogs, both black black labs, and one is smaller and female, and the other, her name is um, Alta, and the other is larger. His name is Orion. And um, he, you know he'd bring out two dogs so we could rotate them. One gets worn out, gets overheated. He can 
can put it back in the truck, let it cool off. He pulls out the other dog. Well, Alta, being small, you know, we'd come up across some heavy brush, and she would, you know, just slide right under it. But Orion, being a big dog, you would think he would have a problem with this. But I, I watched this dog as as we walked into this wall of thorns. I see the handler, you know, like hackling and hack, hacking and struggling his way through these thorns, and there's a field over on the left-hand side. And I saw Orion look at the handler and then look over at the field and then look back over to the handler and you could see you could see the gears turning in the dog's head like screw this I'm not going through the thorns yeah. he knew where the handler was going but he just like walked out into the open field and went around to meet God. up with the handler yeah. so you know the the big dogs you know maybe it's not always a disadvantage you know they can be pretty pretty smart yeah well they wow. can probably cover a lot more ground too I would think so well, interesting. Well, we'll we'll do a deep dive into that stuff in a minute. But um, Scott, wow. you had a couple of reminders. I guess people are communicating um, to you. Um, you're going to warn them that um, we only respond to certain ways. Yeah, just save your effort. Um, I mean, a lot of people are trying to get a hold of us through YouTube, and it's just not a convenient way to communicate. You know, uh, I would stick with uh, Instagram or the Facebook pages for the podcast if you could. Um, we do see them, but don't expect a response. So just a little note. Yeah. And expect a slow response on Facebook because I'm horrible, but stop. You're so good at the, like, you're the best at social. Like, I appreciate that you, you cover that because you're always so good keeping in touch with everybody. I think I, I do have to respond to one message on Instagram. I'll get to that eventually. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so eventually. Bad. I'm so bad. Yeah, it's all good. Anyway, but um, all right. So then we had the last time, the last show that we recorded was a live show at Reckless. So Ken, just for you, we did like a a live show, which was a fundraiser for Search and Rescue. Um, And we we did a 5K race before that, and it was a fun day. But Stomp, what do you you think? Any any special memories, any comments about the the Reckless uh, show? Oh, I thought it was fantastic. Um, they've always, Reckless has always gone out of their way to support Search and Rescue, and this event in particular was to support the New Hampshire Outdoor Council, and um, it was well attended. It was a ticketed event, which is the first for us, and it sold out within like a day or two, uh, so that was pretty neat. Um, all the guests were phenomenal, and the word is that they raised uh, $1,500 by ticket sales, um, and as you know, the per- a percentage of the full conditions brew that they formulated with Ty Gagne, the author, a uh, percentage of that will also go to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council. So all in all, it was a really successful event and uh, just wanted to thank everybody that came out. Yeah, yeah, everyone was great. Like, um, you know, Floki and Mel were great. Daryl was great. I could have <laughs> yeah. talked to Wayne for another five hours. We got to oh, get him on the show. Um, yeah. Ty was great. Ken was fantastic. Reckless Steve, yeah. um, Cindy, Lynn, everybody was fantastic. Yeah, and and as compared to other shows or other guests um, that we've had on, there seemed to be a, a level of uh, openness and uh, depth to the conversation at this show that I've not experienced um, that often on the podcast. I was really floored by what people were talking about and what they were willing to reveal about certain uh, events that have happened over the last few years in the region. So it was a really neat show. Yeah, yeah. And as nervous as I get about these shows, like I, I definitely felt more comfortable once 
we hit record and we started talking, but I do get, you know, it's it a little freaky having people watch you. Uh, I like this environment better where it's just like, it feels like a work call to me. So I don't think about it as much, but it was fun. Yeah. 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 And this is the first show that you'll get to hear the actual applause from the audience. And just wanted to thank Reckless Steve for the idea. He, he thought, Hey, why don't you ditch the canned applause that you do after the show intro and use the actual crowd. So that's what you heard tonight on this episode, the actual crowd cheering. So Pretty neat. Are you ready for Slasher's Ear Review? Moving on here, Stomp, you've got a couple of gear review things you Yeah, want. yeah, just in time for Christmas. So we have two items. The first one is a Sasqu- Sasquatch call. So if you're in the woods... And you want to have a uh, a Yeti or a Sasquatch come to your location? Mm. You buy this little digital eight bit analog device that will <laughs> send out Sasquatch Sasquatch calls, and uh, you'll be all set. You get that grainy picture on your camera and show everybody on Instagram. It's going to be wicked cool. Does that come with a guarantee that I'll see Sasquatch? <laughs> well, Ken, that's what I wanted to ask you: is do you do you have Sasquatch in Texas? <laughs> I've never, I've I've never, I've never uh, looked for Sasquatch or, or hung out with anyone who uh, has been looking for Sasquatch. <laughs> My understanding is that Texas has their own, like you guys have what's called the chupacabra. Have you heard of that before? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah the the blood sucking it yeah. sucks the bloods of uh, the blood of goats. Something yeah, like yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. yeah, you guys have that. So, have you seen one of those before? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but I've I've seen a pretty ugly looking cat. Okay. Well, we'll see. <laughs> but uh, if if we um, we'll check out the Sasquatch whistle here, and if it works out well, we'll see if we can reach out to the owners to see if they can get a chupacabra call going for you. <laughs> just what we need exactly so, that's so great right about now ken's like what did i sign up for yeah 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 this is so much my reputation <laughs> that's great <laughs> and uh this second one is great this is another stocking stuffer uh thanks mountain mike for this one uh he sent along a gear review that uh is pretty cool it's called the crap strap it's k-r-a-p-p and uh, the crap strap is a sling that you wrap around a tree and put around your waist and it lets you sort of lean back and hover to do your business. And it uh, comes at a staggering cost of forty nine ninety five. Well, I guess you, it, is, is that intended to convince the wife or girlfriend to go camping with you? I don't know. You know, that's I a good know. idea. That's it could be a selling point, actually. You know what I'm thinking, though, Stomp? If somebody was I, in- I don't see that convincing my wife. No, no, that's not going to do it. But you know what I'm thinking about, guys, is no. we're going to talk about no, dogs tonight. It's not. Yeah. I think that this crap strap could potentially double as a rescue sling for a dog. So the rescue sling people should take a look at this and see if they can re-engineer their... their um, what is it? What's the rescue sling called again that we have for dogs? Oh, Pack-a-Paw. Pack-a-paw. Yeah, the pack-a-paw group should see if they can like add an attachment so that you can use the pack-a-paw as a crap strap. <laughs> and then you have you know two products yeah. in one. Yeah, multiple use. That's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like I would fall into the toilet paper in this thing. I wouldn't be able to hold that position for more than five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, you're a hiker. You could handle this. All right, but well, it's it's well, awesome. There's like a the picture of the crap strap, it shows a mannequin. It's a mannequin. 
like in this position. You got to check it out. It's great. <laughs> I feel like somebody should just set that up at a trailhead. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. Right. Oh, man. Well, too funny. Uh, that's going to be on the Instagram story stomp. I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. Oh, boy. So we'll get tagged for copyright for Sopranos and then for this image. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh. Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stump. Pop culture. We got a couple things to mention here. And um, I don't know if you looked at the Instagram lately, but the story is full of listeners that have been posting their Spotify wrapped uh, images of their minutes that they've listened to the podcast. And it's really flooring. It's, it's, so, uh, it's so nice to see all these people listening to the podcast so much. It's great. So it is, I, it's, it's, it is nice to see them listen to the podcast. It's concerning that people have that like much free time on their hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like some of the time is like 15,000 minutes and this and that. It's, it's hilarious. But uh, again, thank you very much. Did you look at your wrapped? I didn't even know about this thing until about a week ago. I haven't looked. Where? What is it? Is it, um, it Spotify it's a, like, or is it? It's on Spotify, and it's just like a, a yearly review of your listens, your interests, your highest, most popular songs that you listen to, and this and that. So it's very cool. No, I haven't looked at it yet. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. It's good. So again, thanks everybody for for listening to the podcast. As Mike says, we don't know why anybody listens at all, but uh, <laughs> we appreciate it. And uh, moving on, we uh, I discovered a, a cool documentary, and it's cool in the sense that it gives you, uh, it, it's a terrible story. It's about the 1982 Alpine Meadows uh, Avalanche, which is a, a ski resort that I think has been since renamed in the Tahoe region of California. Um, but it's interesting in the sense that they go into avalanche mitigation, you know, the daily efforts of the, uh, I don't know if they're the ski patrollers or whatnot, but you know, they, they use cannons and, you know, artillery, basically, and all these different methods to try to prevent avalanche. But unfortunately, um, in 1982, there was one that struck the actual base and several people died. There was one survivor that was buried for, for days, apparently. So it's a really neat documentary worth checking out. Yeah, I see this. I've seen this on my recommended um shows to watch. I'm just I'm too busy with squid games right now, but I will check this out. <laughs> So I gotcha. Okay. And, uh, last but not uh, least. And then stop. Yeah. Al, our friend Al sent in a, a link to us, 15 minute podcast. If anyone wants to check it out. So we had talked about it. We had covered a story, I think two episodes ago about uh, a DJ that had used, what were the lights that he used stop that caused eye, eyeball sunburn? I think they were just, they were high-powered LEDs, but they, yeah, they were yeah. just, yeah, they were burning out people's uh, retinas and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, so, so definitely remind people, and I, I had to do this this weekend. So the the, the higher summits are snow covered, and the sun, when the sun's out and it's reflecting off the snow, like you do need to make sure that you keep you watch out for your eyes. So make sure that you're wearing eye protection. But Al sent over a link to a podcast that talks about, um. It kind of does a deep dive into burning eyes in the outdoors 
and it's a um, the podcast is called Advanced Wilderness Life Support. And it's the University of Utah School of Medicine. So they do a 15-minute podcast about burning eyes in the outdoors and, um, you know, how to protect your eyes and what the right glasses are. So if you want to geek out on that, it's a, it's, it's a pretty interesting episode. Mm, excellent. Excellent. Yep. I hate I hate wearing goggles or any, any yeah, glasses. You, you got to do it, though. You got to yeah. do it. Yeah. That's so frustrating. All right. Well, yeah. Thank you, Al. This Al, I'll have to meet this person sometime or another. I keep on thinking it's AI. Thanks, AI. Yeah, no, it's Al. It's because <laughs> I in the so he's asking that because in the script I always say thanks Al, but it looks like AI. But it's, it's just Al. <laughs> right. Thank you. So moving on, we have uh, free stickers if anybody's interested at Ski Fanatics off of Exit Twenty Eight in Campton, New Hampshire. It's their new building just behind the post office or adjacent to the post office and Dunkin' Donuts as you come off the exit. Or you can go to Spinner's Pizza Parlor, uh, just minutes off of uh, Route 93, Dascom Road in North Andover. It's the number one voted pizza in the area. Family owned since 1994. So you can go visit Dolls and Pops and say hi and get your selfie. But just watch out when you're taking that selfie. Let's see. We want to give a shout out to Reckless for all their uh, support. A special thanks to them. Uh, you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4,000 footers, and less than 10 minutes from the five corners. And uh, donation time. We've had a couple donations over the last several days while we were off. Uh, thank you, John Huck, for donating eight coffees to us. Thank you. Paul donated 20. Thank you very much, Paul. It's great to see you at the show. And Stacy Tardiff donated five coffees as well thank you stacy and uh quick healing to you to get you back on the trail okay and uh that's all we got for donations great people great people hey stomp this is the part of the show where we talk about what beer we're drinking but before we do that i I, i'm gonna forget to do this so i just wanted to give you a heads up i'll put this in the show notes but our friend dave dylan from uh chase the summit you know he was on the show he's got his own podcast he's an ultra runner yeah um he is a tech guy. He posted something on his own Facebook page the other day. So he does a video podcast. He was able to use an AI system where he uploaded sample video of himself as well as um, you know, some voice samples. And then he went into AI and had them uh, created essentially like a two to three minute video talking about a particular subject. And none of it is him. It's completely AI generated from the backdrop to the um, video of him with his arms moving to the content to the voice. I mean, literally, like he just, he's like, this is like, he's like, I got to raise the alarm on this because this is getting to be like to the point where, you know, if I can do this based on a two minute sample. You know, nothing, anybody could fake anything with AI. So, it's, How long is we've the been talking uh, clip? about this a lot? It's like a two minute clip or so. I'll I'll put it on. I'll, I'll send it over to you, Snob. I don't know if he wants me to release it in the show notes, but sure, um, sure. AI is getting to the point where it's it's crazy. Like we could literally just do a show on AI, and I think it would be if we did it on video. Like I don't know if people would be able to tell the difference. So yeah, that's freaky. It's like what is going to happen here over the yeah. next few years? It's crazy. You know, there's so. probably some um, some application there in search and rescue that hasn't been thought of. 
Um, if you use AI in conjunction with open source intelligence, that could potentially be useful for certain kinds of searches. Well, we did a story, I think it was two shows ago, Ken, where the there's drones. a startup company in, I think, Hong Kong at some researchers have um, combined drone footage with AI to essentially, you know how like they'll crowdsource like looking yeah. at satellite photos? This is basically putting up a, a, a drone and then taking photos of the area and then using AI to identify humans in that area there. So they're, they're, they are starting to, to use that technology. So... We've done something like that, uh, a search where we were looking for human remains and some really, really high-res drone footage was taken and then fed to AI, right. and AI ad attempted to identify human remains. Um, it generated a lot of false positives, just a lot of shiny white things. Some of them were bones, but they, a lot of them were bones, but they were animal bones, and the other things were just, you know, uh, oil derricks, pieces of oil field equipment. Um, yeah. So semi-successful there interesting yeah, but it's interesting like the thing about this this example of um and i'll email it to you ken too so you can check it out but um this example of the podcaster creating a video of himself like basically doing his podcast you know that te the technology is so new and he was able to do it so that it's such high quality like i can only imagine like two three years from now like the the ai that you the exercise you just did will probably you know they'll be able to fix the false positives pretty significantly i would think pretty quickly i would think yeah, yeah. i mean that's the whole idea with ai it's just learning and its ability to you know improve and everything else supposedly yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting world we're we're moving into here, Stomp. But yeah. anyway, are you drinking anything tonight? You got any beers? I am. I, I picked up one. I went with your uh, your theme motif here, and I picked up a Kinsman by Resilience. It's well, it's by Schilling, but it's their Resilience line. It's a Citra Cryo Cascade in Idaho Seven and uh, seven percent alcohol into your pale ale. It's really good. It's very tasty. I love Schilling. Anyway. Nice. Yeah, what nice. you got? I I have a treehouse, very hazy. So I went to treehouse about two months ago, and it is a double IPA, 8.6% alcohol. So I'll be slobbering all over myself by the end of the night here. <laughs> so, and Ken, we didn't prep you. I don't know if you're drinking <clears throat> or if you're just drinking water or whatever, but... I don't know if you're a beer drinker, if you have a well, favorite beer. I'm more of a I'm more of a martini guy. Okay, an nice. aristocrat. I like it. Uh, <laughs> hey, I, I yeah, yeah, I'm fancy, and I apologize if I'm stepping over you on my end. There's a bit of an audio delay. Uh, oh no! When when I hear you start and stop talking, it's uh, all good. But yeah, I'm I'm a martini guy, and when I'm on keto, I'll drink uh, that you know low carb Corona stuff. Oh, there uh, you go. I like a Corona. Yeah. No, and don't worry about the delay there. Um, you know, we I can work it out. We can edit stuff. Yep. Um, all right, Stomp. So uh, recent hikes, you've done two. Do you want to break down where you've been in the whites lately? Yeah, sure, sure. I've got the fire again, my friend. So the first one, I've got the fire for the New Hampshire Highest 500. And um, the way I usually tackle these are to find, you know, clumps of them that I can tackle all at once. So I looked south. This was the Thanksgiving weekend, and I, I honed in on the Bel Belknap range, not Belknap range, and I decided to go for it. So that Friday after Thanksgiving, I went out and uh, tackled 
um, three of them. I had planned to do four, and um, my plan was to hit Mount Clem, and this is off of the uh, Round Pond area. If I, I provided a little map there, Mike. I don't know if it'll help, but uh, it was interesting. So started around like 7.54 in the morning, and this is near Gunstock, if anybody has skied there, just to give you a point of reference. So original idea was to hit Mount Clem, which is a short one, and um, it's part of a loop that comes next to Round Pond. And uh, for some reason, man, this is my biggest complaint with the Belknap Range. The the signage, the blazing on the trees can be really confusing at times. They use this color-coded yeah. rainbow spectrum. And, uh, you know, I get, I understand blazing it for different colors for different trails and stuff. But what's really freaky is they overlap them sometimes. And then on top of that, you have previous blazes from before the trail turned to a different color so it can be really confusing you so you got to do your homework i had a map on me in my phone didn't really reference it, reference it too much and sure enough as i was heading to mount clem i diverted <laughs> i diverted onto the uh what is it the uh old guilford trail east guilford yeah. trail and that was not my intention so i ended up going up to uh belknap first mount belknap and, I, you know, at about 2,000, 2,500 feet, I realized that I had taken a wrong turn, but I'm like, okay, let's just get on with this and see what happens. So I ended up going to Belknap, uh, following yellow and red blazes, um, mostly barefoot the way up. It wasn't too bad. Early winter type of snow. The fire tower at the top of Belknap is super cool, but it's currently under construction. Uh, okay. So that was, that was sort of a bummer. From there, um, another sort of blunder on Mr. Stomp's side here. I ended up taking a red blaze trail down about a thousand feet, thinking it was heading towards Gunstock, <laughs> but it was actually a trail that was heading down to another trailhead. So I uh, turned back up and I found that behind this dilapidated shed was another trail that actually went over to uh, Gunstock proper. So. Yeah, I was totally noobing it, dude. I was just like, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to look at the map. I'm just going to make this up as I go. So it was fun. Um, So yeah, made it over to Gunstock, which was really great. And, um, you know, as I was heading over there, you had to put spikes on. It was super icy and um, the snow was maybe traced to two inches, but it was just slick, really slick. On the way back, I bumped into a listener and uh, a legend around here, Corey Hempel, who actually straight... Yeah, it was great seeing Corey. She's so cool, and she, I met her. I met her dog too, which is uh, her dog's a sweetie. Oh yeah, I love those dogs. They're so I, I, every yeah. time she like posts a story or something, I'm always looking at the the dogs. Like have that smile on their face. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Corey's great. So she actually um, spent a little bit of time with me, pointing out um, the trail system and, and and answered my question because after Gunstock, which had an amazing view of the lakes and the mountains. I wanted to get over to Piper, and I just wasn't sure if there was an active trail that did that. But she, you know, showed me how to get over there, and um, sure enough, there was an uh, old Piper trail that uh, got over to Piper. So I went to Piper, which blew me away. It was like being on top of uh, Dickey Northern Ledges, just wide open ledges with uh, stone benches and just geez, dramatic views. So it was really cool. Um, after that, I, I went down this trail, which was called the, I believe it was called the Piper Connector Trail, which took you back down to Round Pond. And that was a mind blender because at that point, I'm getting a little fatigued. 
And after descending from Piper, maybe 2,000 feet, you're in this deep valley. It decides to ascend again for another several hundred feet. And, oh, dude, that was totally unexpected. Looking at the map, you can see it. Um, I think, what was the name of that mountain? It circles some... White Sun Suncook Sun Cook Mountain or something of that nature. Okay. Yeah, something like that. Um, so yeah, yeah, I was just burnt out by then. So when I finally got back to Round Pond, I still wanted to get Clem. And uh, as I was ascending Clem, uh, my legs were just getting gimpy. So I just decided to bail. Uh, so that was about one twenty in the afternoon. So I, it was that classic decision point. Do I want to do Clem or just turn back and head down back to the truck? And I, of course, made the uh, stupid call of trying to do Clem. Uh, but at least I turned around before trying to get all the way up Clem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've done like, so I've done the opposite. Like I've hit all those like um, Eastern peaks, like Clem, Mac, Rand, Quarry, yeah. Anna, straight back and major, but I haven't done Belknap and Gunstock and Piper and Whiteface and those. So I'll get yeah. out there, but yeah, it's, that's a cool year and running into Corey's good. She's like the expert in the Belknap. So, Oh, she sure is. She was zipping yeah. uh, like at, it was just a glimpse of her running by me. I just, a flash mm-hmm. like, was that Corey? <laughs> yeah. And then number two uh, on Sunday, I did um, another 500 highest and that was Deception East. So the plan was to hike, Mount Deception and Deception East, which are two mountains in the Dartmouth range, which are just west of the presidential. So uh, Steve, Reckless Steve had asked if I want to come along for Bushwhack and I threw out some ideas and we all decided to to meet at Upper Falls on the access road that heads towards the Cog and actually try to do these mountains from the eastern side, which is when you do your research about this uh, Deception range, Everybody does it from Cherry Mountain Pond Road, which at the moment is closed, but it's walkable for, say, two to three miles until you get to Small Cherry Pond. And then from there, people generally bushwhack up a mile, mile and a half to get to Mount Deception. And these are in the uh, 3,500 to 36, 3,700 range for height. Um, It was an amazing day. We started at 840. We generally just wore our spikes uh, the whole way. No no uh, snowshoes. I mean, the snow is just too thin until you got to the top, and then we were dealing with about a foot deep snow in the call between the two peaks. We got out at 4.11 p.m. So we were at 7.8 miles in basically, what, seven or eight hours. It was slow going. I've I'm, I've not been challenged like this since the captain, and the captain is just you know, maybe half a mile of that. And this was several miles of blowdown fields, the size of football fields and just like, just tremendously difficult uh, terrain. Um, But like all good hikes, like all most good hikes, we got surprising views that just blew us away. There's one view up top of uh, Mount Deception that covers the literal entire presidential, as you can see all the way from the North to the, to the South, the entire presidential range from that mountain it's unbelievable so if you're a bushwhacker and you're up for like some torture and you want to view that's that's the one right there i need to um i gotta figure out what the what the or the name origin is for that one i'm curious i'd be curious as well yeah it's funny i'm not quite sure yeah, that is. But I'm not surprised you can see the presidentials from there because it's just sort of like it's it's right in that area. So yeah. 
So Excellent that's all story. I got. Yeah, it's good all to right, be out well, again. You've been, you've been a busy guy here. So I did yeah. a. I also got out into the the kinsmen. So my daughter needed a couple of four thousand footers. So Ken, in the northeast here, we have. Um, we're very into lists, so we have a certain number of mountains that are uh, what we call 4,000-footers, so there's 48 of them in New Hampshire, so we make it a game of like summiting all of these these mountains, and then it's sort of a badge of honor, so my daughter is pursuing her list. She's got she's at 26 now after this hike, so... Um, so we did wow. the Kinsmen's. We left. We got on trail around nine in the morning. We stopped at the 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 hooks at rest area and loaded up on food, which I love that place. Stomp um, <laughs> apple cider donuts. So we were we were feeling great. Uh, we met uh, listener Steve, who's been hiking with me all winter, and, and we've gotten together a couple of times. And then Nobby Hikes was joining us, and then uh, my daughter's boyfriend joined us, and he was like, "I'm gonna do it," and I said, "It's gonna be a long hike." So I was nervous about him because he's never done a, a winter condition hike before. Yeah. And um, he did great. You know, it was a little bit slow going, but we, you know, got up to Lonesome Lake. And um, one thing I noticed about Lonesome Lake, I haven't been there in a long time. I camped out there one winter, which was ridiculous. But that is not a place to camp out because what I realized with Lonesome Lake is that the cold air just sits in the bottom of that like a bowl so like literally you could you could feel the difference in temperature when you got to lonesome lake compared to what it was like coming up it must be like a five or ten degree difference in the in the cold weather huh interesting yeah you'd think it'd be sheltered uh, with the uh the wall of mountains to the west yeah but i think what happens is the really cold air just sits at that low point and just doesn't Mm -hmm. move yeah. So it was pretty chilly, but we got to Lonesome Lake hot, chilled out for a little while, and then went up fishing Jimmy, mm-hmm. put the spikes on, and uh, made our way over. But it was a little bit of a slow hike, and we ended up getting out around 4.30 or so. But when we got back, when we were heading back, we got back to Lonesome Lake, and... Um, it was pretty cool because the moon was rising over Franconia from Lonesome Lake, so we got some good photos. Oh, beautiful. Uh, which is cool. And then also, Stomp, we had a couple... The weirdest thing happened is that me and my daughter were climbing up to um, North Kinsman. And as we were climbing up, this was a couple that was um, headed down. And they were... Um, one of the the lady had said, like, sounds like a search and rescue. And then I stopped and I was like... My daughter turned around and looked <laughs> at me, like, was shocked. That's and then, weird. Um, I was like, oh, did you say sounds like a search and rescue? And she's like, oh... Is that is that your podcast? And I was like, yeah, I'm Mike. And she's like, oh my God, that's so great. So we took a selfie and then I was talking to her friend and he's connected with AMC in Boston. So I've got to, I've got to follow up with him, but it was great to meet them and it was, yeah. it was exciting. Yeah. That's really funny. Good for you. Yeah. Small world. Yeah. Um, and then my daughter was like, oh my God, I'm never going to hear the end of this. And I was like, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yep. Were the trails busy? Very busy. Yeah, a lot of yeah. people out there. So a lot of people it was a perfect at, uh, day. How about at the hut? A lot of people there Not too? Not that many people at the hut, but uh, just a lot of people on the trails. Gotcha, gotcha. It's awesome. All right, Stomp, let's skip the notable listeners. We'll do that next week because we want to yep. get to Ken. But before we do that, let's uh, let's do a couple of sponsors here. We've got one, one new sp- yeah. a sponsor that's coming back. Yeah, let's do it. So 
Fieldstone Kombucha. Welcome back, and uh, we're glad to have you. Some great news here. So Fieldstone Kombucha, New England's premium craft kombucha company. If you're in the heart of New England, you need to drink a New England-style kombucha. Softer, less acidic, and truly enjoyable. Our kombucha is naturally effervescent and boasts full-bodied flavor. Fieldstone crafts the best seasonal flavors. When we tell you there's blueberries in our baby bandit flavor, it nearly turns your tongue blue. Women owned and operated, we brew in Rhode Island using whole, locally sourced ingredients. Fieldstone kombucha is the perfect replenishing drink after a day on the slopes or a trek in the woods. It's chock full of probiotics and healthy acids to keep you in top form. So find us locally here in New Hampshire at Biederman's in Plymouth, Mad River Coffee House in Campton, the Concord Food Co-op, and more. So check out our website for the full list of New Hampshire and New England-wide locations. Use code SLASHER, that's S-L-A-S-R, on our website for 10% off an online order. Ship straight to your door. Visit FieldstoneKombuchaCo.com. Excellent stop. So uh, very excited to have Fieldstone back, and I got to go pick some up. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Yep. Now that it's local, it's like, woo. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Um, all right, Stomp. So we, um, just a quick point here. You had a couple of notes here. So I'm going to be finishing up my winter 4,000 footer list coming yep. up this winter. So I've got two trips to go, three trips to go. You just tallied up all of your your list and you said you're at 22. So yeah. you're going to try to like get, get some of these done? I'm going to get cooking on it. Yeah, Mrs. Stomp and I were looking through our old uh, 48 list and she's at 14 i'm at 22 and we've got the fire under our butts so we're going to dive in this uh, winter and see if we can't tackle some okay all right yeah, looking forward to helping out yeah Excellent. right on awesome how many do you have left six all right so you're planning on doing these what really quick like a trip yeah, or two? yeah when i get back from florida i'm gonna bang them all out in january Excellent. Wow. Well, if we can line them up, uh, keep in touch. We'll coordinate. Yeah, I got a big crew actually coming out for Owl's Head. So if you need to do that one, um, I've got I've got a, a pretty good group going. Okay. Awesome. Excellent. Yep. My favorite. <laughs> All right. And uh, our final sponsor of the night here before we get to Ken. Do you have a sweat problem, Ken? <laughs> <laughs> Sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails. <laughs> well, we this got something for you. <laughs> this is this is made for you, brother. So, plus, sweat is a serious risk factor. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate. This can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. So, we've got good news here at Slasher for you. There's a piece of gear that solves the sweat problem: Valcluse's Ultralight Ventilation Backpack Frame. The frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack, size 15 liters to 65 liters, and creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultra light, weighing less than a pair of socks at just over three ounces. So whether you're hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow and ventilation. So visit valclusegear.com to order an ultralight ventilation frame today. Use promo code SLASHER. S-L-A-S-R to enjoy a $5 discount. Plus, let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. 
Yeah, uh, Nobby had his uh, new new version of Falcluse when we did the Kinsman hike, and then Caroline oh. um, had hers. I haven't switched mine back over to my backpack, so I was using my bigger gear, so I didn't use it this time. But gotcha. Uh, what did Nobby think? My larger one. So genera- yeah. generation two, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, yeah. He said that um, you know it felt cool on his back, and that um, you know it was comfortable and no sweat issues. Excellent. Yeah, they're yeah. flying off the shelves. We get notifications all the time. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. All right, um, so Ken, this is your moment. This is your big segment. You ready to go? I'm ready. Excellent. This right. is, and you said this is your first podcast, right? Yes, this is my first podcast. Great, great. So why don't you start off um, giving a little bit of, of an introduction on your background, maybe talk about whether you've done a lot of hiking in your younger days and then how you got into search and rescue and then a little bit about your academic background. Yeah, so yeah, I did do a little bit of hiking, uh, you know, nothing like y'all are doing, just undeveloped land uh, near where I, I grew up. Um, what got me into search and rescue is uh, I got involved in an off-road club that was kind of like the um, uh, the Cajun Navy, but mostly with, you know, lifted trucks and Jeeps and whatnot. Uh, and it's, nice. it's a volunteer group called uh, Houston Area Off-Road Recovery. And we went out in the um, went out in the the tax day floods uh, to volunteer, and then went out again in Harvey. And in Harvey, uh, I wound up linking up with a group on a boat, and we did a lot of stuff on a boat. Did some stuff on a monster truck. Uh, my wife basically started a, a dispatch on Discord for coordinating people. Um, it was it was a really life changing experience for me. Um, but even doing that, I knew. I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I know I'm getting it over my head. I don't know what the right gear is, but I know I'm not wearing the right gear. Um, and and it, that's that's when I got bit by the bug. I wanted to keep kind of doing that thing, but I, did, I didn't want to keep doing it, you know, with an off-road club. Um, I, I in, went through uh, CERT training. I don't know if you're familiar with FEMA's CERT program mm-hmm. and realized that's, that's, that's not where it's... I'm not, not going to keep doing that same kind of thing. Um, went in with our local cert teams and then I found Texas search and rescue and, uh, went out to one of their trainings, watched them work with canines. Um, at first I was really interested in becoming a canine handler. Um, but I knew I wanted to become an EMT and, uh, I realized, um, I'm doing that. I'm also going to school for this, this graduate degree it's not realistic uh, for me to become a canine handler after I, I really grasped how much work and time and money is involved in that. Um, I was already stretching myself um, thin. So I've been a uh, I've been with Texar since um, 2018. I got my EMT basic in 2019. Um, got my uh, wilderness EMT uh, from Knowles, which is just uh, really fantastic. Uh, program their wilderness upgrade for medical professionals 
um, program. And, um, yeah, I started working on my graduate degree in um, emergency and disaster management two weeks before Harvey hit. So it was kind of interesting timing, starting that degree and then going out into this this big disaster, um, the very thing I'm researching and, and, and studying. And um, from my experiences in, in Texar, I knew uh, um, I either wanted to do research on volunteer groups or research into canines. And I, I found a way to combine the two. And uh, I did a couple different projects um, while I was working on my graduate degree. And I was very fortunate to have um, the support of, of my teammates in, in Texar. Um, they were very supportive and it helped my research to a great degree. Um, but of course, while I'm on here tonight, I'm, I'm speaking for myself and, uh, and not, on, not on behalf of my team. And the sort of the area that you've been most focused on, which is kind of a, I would assume it's a niche area, but it's a critical area, is when dogs are out in the field, they're obviously at a, they're at a risk of injury. So a lot of times it's the the people that are in search and rescue teams, they have medical training and they've got their, um, you know, wilderness first aid training and things like that but it's applied towards humans so your focus is around thinking about like how do we triage the dogs if they're injured in the field during their search is that that correct that's that's correct that's what i did my my research on taking it from from uh you know the first aid level to to something um of, of a higher standard was anybody thinking about this or talking about this that you were aware of? I have to think that this is something that people would just sort of say, like, "Well, we can we can figure things out based on the knowledge that we have in uh, medical procedures for humans." But it's it's clearly different with dogs. You've got to have specialized knowledge. So it not th this is where it gets really niche. Sar, um, I don't believe so, and and I'm. I'm a native Texan, never lived outside of Texas, only done SAR in Texas, only researched Texas teams. Um, so I don't know if it's different for folks in other parts of the country, but excluding like federal teams like the, the USAR teams um, and Coast Guard, I don't know if they have dogs, but excluding, you know, paid professionals like that. Um, I, that doesn't really seem to exist in volunteer search and rescue to the best that I've been able to find. It is more common in um, law enforcement settings. Uh, one of the teams that I, I, I encountered in my research, um, I came across an article about the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And when you get to a big city that has a full-time SWAT team, um, they have the funding and the resources uh, to have um, tactical medics on their team and of course they also have canines and they'll take this class that you, you know at the paid level like that they're all paramedics they're not emt basics like me um they'll go and they'll take a course it's it's based off of guidelines called canine tech that's tactical emergency emergency casualty care um where you learn to apply basically their paramedic skills um, two canines. So they already have these skills. They're used to doing them on people. Uh, and now they learn to do them on, on animals. Um, that class is open to lay persons and, um, some SAR people, um, take that class handlers, take that class. I took it and it was very educational, helped my research. 
Um, but so far from what I've seen in the military setting and law enforcement setting, um, they're already way ahead thinking on how to handle this problem. Uh, but that hasn't that that doesn't seem to be the case when it comes to the volunteer search and rescue. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine that. Um, and and I think in New Hampshire, I don't think I suspect that in New Hampshire it's not as common for search and rescue. So I'm I'm not on search and rescue myself. Um, I'm more on the hiking side, but I would suspect it's not as common as you would find in Texas to deploy the canine units, um, just because the majority of you know, the it's a mix. So a lot of the rescues in New Hampshire are focused on hikers where you can do sort of litter carryouts. And then there's a fair amount of like ATV snowmobile activities. There are, there are, um, you know, elderly walk-offs and young people walk-offs and things like that, where I would assume they deploy dogs a fair amount, but probably not at the level of Texas. Um, but can, can you talk a little bit about like you, you have, I think, I feel like you probably have like flood and hurricane response and more sort of emergency weather events. But can, can you sort of talk about like what areas of search and rescue are most common in, in your um, in your experience in Texas? Sure. Um, being being a big team, we've we've got um, people that have. Uh, come to Texas and join Texar from other states. And um, I, I've talked to uh, teammates from Arizona and Montana and seem to be wildly different operating environments and wildly different structures. So it does kind of help to um, explain how we do things here. Um, unlike most other states, uh, search and rescue is not a function of a local sheriff's department. Um, most search and rescue teams are volunteer um, nonprofit organizations. That's what Texas Search and Rescue is. Um, in my research, I uh, identified um, 10 volunteer teams in Texas. Um, that was almost all I could find. Uh, and I solicited them for participation in some of my research. Uh, I also gathered information about them from the web. And Texar is a little bit unique in that um, we have a lot of medical people. We're very medical heavy. Uh, we were only one of two out of 10 teams that I could find that advertised that capability on uh, on their team website. And the other was associated with the fire department. Um, so we're a little bit unusual in that regard. And Search and rescue is probably a lot different than what you guys are doing in the mountains. Uh, we do do hurricane and flood response. Um, yeah. We also do event medical support. Um, so there's this one event we used to. I've done I've done event medical support for like mountain bike races and things like that. Uh, cert um, competitions where they do the search and rescue stuff, and there's a possibility of someone getting hurt. Um, and, and we do large public events. There's one, a big one down in Galveston every year. Galveston uh, Boulevard Peninsula gets swarmed by tourists that overwhelm yeah. uh, the normal resources on, on the peninsula. And ESD2 um, often brings us in to provide medical support there. Um, we do incident management stuff. Um, one, one cool thing I got to do was uh, serve as a liaison in a FEMA exercise um, with a nuclear power plant. Um, where they they did a tabletop exercise of this scenario where there's a disaster that threatens the plant and possibly the plant leading to a bigger safety issue. And um, I got to serve in an IMT capacity there as a liaison uh, between the team and, uh, and, and the local government there. 
Um, we do a lot of searching for missing persons, um, dementia walkaways, um, children um, with autism, things of that nature that just go walking off. Um, occasionally, I, I would describe what we do as wilderness search and rescue, but only in comparison to urban search and rescue. It's okay. <clears throat> We do occasionally go out to like Big Bend, um, but wilderness in this context just means a pretty remote area. And maybe it's it's not the mountains or a, a, a uh, you know, a trail in the mountains, but it, it could be an oil field somewhere way out in the middle of nowhere or a riverbed, um, you know, hiking through a, a riverbed, riverbed after a flash flood. And, and there's a lot of criminal investigations. That's a major component of it for uh for us to the point at which um, the team has grown large enough to uh, afford several paid positions. And we hired a former uh, Texas Ranger to start a missing persons unit um, to go through cold cases and work with law enforcement to identify opportunities to uh, go out and help these with these cold cases and see if we can um, find people and bring killers to justice. Wow. And do you... Um as far as the you know the function of the team is it like do you stand by to get a call to say like okay we've got to activate a mission and then you just have to respond back to the 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 lead to say like okay i can help with this volunteer assignment or do they have um or is it an expectation that you have to respond when they call like do you have the option to say like i'm too busy to do something or is it um, I guess I'm curious about like the, sort of the call out process that you have. Yeah. So that, that was, um, we're, we're NIMS compliant, uh, before you can be even get close to being field deployable. You have to take your basic NIMS and ICS courses, learn about incident command and command structure. Um, we don't self-deploy. Uh, we only, um, are deployed at the request of, you know, state, federal, uh, local government, um, yeah, that was you know, you my question actually. Thanks for adding this. Yeah, yeah, and a, a lot, a lot of um, folks um, they aren't familiar with Texar. They get it confused with other organizations, and sometimes you know that that's a, a good connotation, and, and sometimes it's not. But we're very careful to um, we try to operate and call ourselves unpaid professionals. Um, operate just like the professionals. The only difference is that. Um, that were volunteers. Um, we do occasionally, this is rare, but it's really interesting. I didn't, I never imagined this would happen, but we do occasionally respond to requests from, um, corporations. Uh, there's one, I don't know if I can name them, but we have a, a corporate sponsor that, um, when they go to build a new location, um, they'll request our canines to go in and make sure there aren't any bodies there before they build, because if they start building and uncover a body, then, that creates a massive headache for them. So they just save themselves the headache by, hey, guys, can you come out and take a look for us? Um, we've also got gotten called out to do damage assessments after a hurricane in um, went through Louisiana. The storm's name escapes me at the moment. But it was a, a private emergency management company that handles emergency management and crisis communications for uh, large chains like you know hardware stores and pet stores, things of that nature. And they reached out to us to go out and get boots on the ground and drones in the air and assess damage to uh, their customers' facilities. So it, it's 
you know, mostly state, uh, state and local, sometimes federal or task forces, but occasionally you get those, those oddball corporate requests too. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. I would have never imagined like a, a private company would say like, you know, sweep this area for, for human remains so that we don't have to clean up the mess as we start construction. But I would assume that that, you know, I guess that makes sense. It's just like, it's oh. so rare up in this, the Northeast area that, that something like that would happen. But I do feel like, and I don't know why, but I do feel like, like there's more likelihood to find a dead body like down in Texas for some reason. I don't know why, but. Yeah, and that that would, of course, completely grind things to a halt. I don't know if they'd bring out the sheriff or a coroner or who, but they'd have to bring out someone and make an initial assessment of, does this look like it was a crime or someone just naturally passed? Is it a very old grave, a uh, grave site, you know, from the 1800s that, you know, isn't marked anymore? Uh, and then that would just bring construction to a uh, halt. So it, it makes sense to um, ask, ask us to do a sweep uh, before they get started. Yeah, and then can you talk about the dogs? Are the dogs, are the canine units like embedded in Texar or are they a separate unit that you engage with um, based on the, the specific case that you're you're dealing with? Well, we have different, there's different disciplines and now they're kind of formalized into, in a sense, they're formalized into teams, um, but we're, we're all, all one Texar. Um, when you join a specific uh, team discipline. Um, there's you know some more o- oversight and organization specifically surrounding that that discipline. Um, that's that's true for the canine handlers, just like it's true for the drone drone team or the medical team. What is your? I'm curious. What's your take on the canine handlers? Are they is is the personality type of the canine handlers are they all similar or do they come from sort of a wide background in your your opinion so um i recently delivered i I compiled my research into a presentation and uh, before pitching it to my team and coming on your show um i presented it to some of our team's handlers to get some feedback and uh, as i was talking with them afterwards you know i said Gee, you know, I really appreciate how much time and effort and money goes into this, and what what keeps you guys going when you do lose a dog. And um, one of the handlers said to me, "Well, we all have one thing in common: we're single." Oh, really? Yeah. So they have the time and effort to focus on a dog versus where they, you know, might otherwise be focusing on more interpersonal relationships. So they're making that sacrifice to, to, to the dog. It's, it's a tremendous amount of time. And, you know, you could train a dog, you know, on the weekends, you know, in evenings, you could certainly do that. Um, some some call outs are scheduled, particularly the criminal investigations. If the law enforcement already knows the person's probably dead, there's no point dragging us out on on a weekday. But a lot of other searches, um, criminal investigations included, uh, they have to take place on weekdays. And um, there are handlers that have normal jobs, and they just have bosses that are flexible with them. Um, really, the it seems like. Uh, a good key to success is if you have, if you work for yourself or own your own business and you, you know, can be, if your own boss, you can rearrange your work schedule. And one of the handlers who did a lot to help me with my research, that's the case with him. And he 
treks all over Texas with his dogs on different searches. And what is the, is there a governing authority that certifies these dogs or is it just based on the, so the validation of the other canine handlers? So there is, there is, there is at least one certifying body, um, because I'm not a canine handler, I'm not as I'm not as familiar with their certification process and gen, okay. in general terms. I could tell you how it works. The name of the certifying body, there's at least one. There may be more than one. Um, is uh, escapes me at the moment. And then you know, there's also internal training within the team, making sure the dogs work well with other dogs. Um, I was on a search once where two dogs hadn't worked together before and uh, one attacked the other and I had my first dog patient because of that. Wow. And can you, so can we get into the operational medicine around canine? So this is the situation where like you just described, like a dog gets injured and you've got to go into medical treatment on the dog in the field. Can you, can you just sort of describe what is canine operational medicine um, can you talk about what that means? Can you talk a little bit about the research that you've done in this area? Absolutely. Um, so just to give your, your listeners context, the operation, operational medicine is just a term used to describe medicine practice in a setting that um, you, you're either far from definitive care a hospital, um, you don't have normal resources, uh, or you're far enough from normal urban EMS and hospitals that it justifies bending the rules a little, if you will, uh, doing things that would normally be outside of one's scope of practice. Um, it also be characterized by uh, improvisation. If you go take a wilderness medicine course from Knowles, you'll learn how to improvise splints and sea collars and, and things of, of that nature. Uh, when it comes to the the canines, um, advancements in this area have already been made by um, it, it started in the military. Um, the uh, a lot of a lot of medical research was done based off of uh, experiences uh, the U.S. military's experiences in the global war on terror. Um, and I believe, if I if I'm remembering correctly, that's where um, it, that 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 period of time resulted in the um, the military has a class called TCCC, uh, Tactical Combat Casualty Care, and there's a Combat Casualty Care Committee. Uh, and that uh, much of that was adopted into a civilian version called TEC. Um, and as the military started using working dogs and the global war on terror, they're like, well, man, these dogs are an investment. They're really valuable. We go, you know, bring them out on missions and they get shot or blown up or, you know, hurt in some other way. And we want to, we want to keep them, um, we want to keep them alive and, and get them back, uh, in service. Um, and it, another committee was formed and they adopted, adapted the, um, the the TCCC principles to um, to canines. Um, and there's some differences. A lot of it is a lot of it is is the same. And on the civilian side, um, the same thing trickled down. You have on the civilian side uh, canine tech, uh, tactical emergency casualty care, where you learn how to basically do. Um, not, not that this makes you a paramedic, but you're doing a lot of skills that are at the paramedic level as well as basic skills below that. And you're learning to do that in a hostile environment where people could be shooting at you uh, and shooting at your, at your patients. 
Um, it's really is a really interesting class if you if you ever get the the chance to take one. Um, but in the the as far as civilian SAR goes, you know, it is possible for a dog to get shot at, but typically IEDs and you know uh, gunfire from insurgents is is not what you're you're worried about. Um, we've got two different kinds of dogs. Um, there are human remains detection dogs, um, which are used to look for um, deceased persons' bones um, or complete bodies. And you have live find dogs. Um, we do have some live find dogs, and they do get called out on live find searches um, occasionally. But the bread and butter of our work is... Um, with human remains detection dogs, HRD dogs. And they get called out for a number of uh, scenarios where there are environmental hazards um, that could result in injury. They get called out in floods um, when there could be deceased people trapped in debris under the water. Same thing for hurricane, uh, wildfire. Um, you could be I've, I've talked to handlers that have been brought in as a wildfire was being dealt with and they'd go into a cold area that had, you know, fire had come through there and they're trying to uh, identify bodies. And then there's the danger of smoke or fire, you know, changing directions and coming at them and the dogs could stop, could uh, step on, you know, debris that hurts them or uh, uh, embers, things of that nature. Tornadoes, um, other on on water uh, disasters, and um, responded to a plane crash once. Um, working with canines there, using them to try to find human remains after a plane went down, um, and of course criminal investigations, which we do a lot of. And there are um, to to give you an idea of what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about anything from local gangs to cartels. And, you know, like the cartels have very elaborate ways of killing and torturing people. And then they bury them in these weird uh, public places. Uh, and and there's it, like uh, ritualistic markings. I'm, I'm curious about the cartels. Is it common for them to like divide the bodies up and only bury like sections of people? Or do you tend to find like they're most of the time the bodies are intact? My my understanding from um, talking to to handlers and I don't quote me on this, but my understanding is that often the bodies are dismembered, but they're all they're all buried in one place. Okay, and then there they arrange stuff. Um, they they leave tells that are very subtle, but they like to leave tells. Um, we could also get called into. There's one one canine handler explained to me why he started carrying fentanyl. Um, because he got called out to a search where there had been a bust uh, in a drug house, um, but they also suspected that a person had been murdered and hid on the premises of the drug house. Um, and the law enforcement brought him in, and it hadn't been like fully sanitized yet. You know, and it, it was an in progress kind of thing. Um, they wanted to work as, as you know, in a, in a timely manner. And um, there were booby traps uh, at the scene. Um, I don't remember exactly what booby traps. I think something like punji sticks, something of that nature, but I, I don't recall. Um, but Jeez. working crime scenes like these, it's possible for the dogs to encounter drugs um, that could mess them up. Um, even that wow. search in an oil, oil field I mentioned, 
um, there was a, I forget if it was an oil field or a natural gas field. It was one of those two. And the same handler, I was talking with him and he told me that uh, he noticed his dog behaving funny, like it had an altered level of consciousness. So he took it back to his truck. And, you know, later he talked to a chemical engineer friend of his who explained, well, the gases being offlet, um, in, escaping in these, in these fields, uh, those could damage your dog's nose. Wow. And probably it was experiencing an altered level of consciousness because it was inhaling this stuff. And he found out that if the dog had been kept out too long, it would have destroyed his sense of smell, or at least, you know, destroyed it to the point where it could have affected his ability to, um, to work. And um, the when they're on these searches, whether it's something like that or, or a crime scene, they can encounter um, a number of hazards. Um, a big incident that just happened is um, canines got called out to assist law enforcement um, finding a body in a crime. And uh, he had uh, he brought one dog out, a new dog that um, he's you know been training for a little while, and the dog was so enthusiastic. They were on a bridge. Um, the dog jumped right out of the car and jumped over the bridge and fell. I think something like twenty feet and and injured itself. And uh, fortunately, one of the police officers had taken a um, a tech a canine tech class. Um, for police canines, presumably, and uh, scooped the dog up, and they, you know, rushed it to um, to a veterinary hospital, running code in a in a squad car. Um, you can also have hazards, you know, like debris. I've I've heard you wouldn't you wouldn't think of this, but a lot of the dogs wear vest, and you wouldn't expect a dog to get a puncture wound this way. Um, but I've had handlers tell me that, you know, a dog's wearing a thick vest and it's, you know, running through the woods and a stick gets in between the dog and the vest and the, and the stick is, you know, uh, the vest is, is strong enough that that stick, you know, just ends up bending towards the animal's body and impaling it. Uh, and this one dog got a puncture wound in its, you know, chest cavity because of something like that. And that's not something I... I would have thought would happen, um, but they can get injured in all, all kinds of ways. Heat injuries are the most common, um, but you do have, oh, sure. um, yeah, you, you do have other other trauma like this. Well, I can imagine, like you're talking about that puncture wound, but I could imagine, like you know, tornadoes or even the aftermaths of like hurricanes or floods and things like that. You've got a lot of construction debris that's spread out all over the place. I mean, it only takes one one misstep for the dog to step on a nail or something like that. So, you've got to have all of the tools in your um, medical kit to make sure that you can easily triage that. But can you? Can you talk through, uh, in your experience, like what are some of the more common injuries that dogs will run into in the field? I'm assuming it's got to be a lot of paw-related injuries, right? Yeah, um, splinters and, and cuts on paws. Um, the, their paws can also get burned on hot surfaces. Mm -hmm. um, some canine handlers, they teach their, their dogs to get used to wearing boots, uh, and they'll They'll wear um, they'll wear boots uh, when they're out doing their searches to avoid injuries. They can eat something uh, or drink something when they're out there that um, makes them ill. Like I said, heat injuries are are the big thing. You have to be very careful monitoring the dog's heat. Uh, snake bites, wild animals. If you're out in the middle of nowhere during hunting season, potentially gunshots. Then you got all kinds of weirdness at crime scenes, as I 
mentioned earlier. You could potentially come in contact with drugs. Maybe a guy got, you know, you got a guy hiding out who sees, hey, you know, I recognizes that dog and recognizes this dog as being used to hit, you know, go after a certain gang in a certain area. Maybe they try to go after the dog to stop the dog. Um, the dog dogs are a really big deal. Uh, one handlers told me that um, his dog Ryan, he would after he first started working with this dog and it, it had some really amazing successes. He would get calls from you know unknown numbers from land, random law enforcement officers, random detectives, task forces uh, at all hours of the day and night. Uh, and they didn't know his name. They knew his dog's name. Um, you know, hey, uh, uh, you the guy with a, with a dog named Orion? Yeah. Um, and they'd ask him to come out and, uh, and work a search uh, for them. Um, so the dog, the dog's really, that's the bread and butter of what we do. And it, a good dog um, can set, can basically set the reputation uh, for a team because uh, People, law enforcement knows the dog more than they know the handlers. And if you lose a good dog, um, it, t it takes time to spin up another dog. And even if you get, you know, handlers that are really serious about this, they'll raise dogs in, in phases. So when one gets old enough to retire, they have another one ready. Um, but I, I believe that the dog's performance is a mix of both training and natural talent. And, you know, you, even if you've got a good canine handler, you may not necessarily uh, get, you know, your second dog may not be as, as fantastic as the first because it's a mix of both training and, and talent and the dog's personality. Yeah, yeah. And I know you're not a handler, but I guess if maybe you have a perspective on this, but do you know, um, is there like somebody that's thinking about capacity planning and looking at the big picture of the dogs to say like, okay, Related to Texar, we have nine handlers with seven really good dogs and two okay dogs. And in the future, we think we need to have 16 dogs. Or does anybody, is there anybody thinking that way? Or is it just you guys sort of like just rely on the handlers to be there and, and manage that capacity? And it's not really thought about too much. So. There, there is some, like I alluded to earlier, there is some organization and oversight of each of the individual disciplines on the team. Um, but to the level at which you're talking about, um, to the best of my knowledge, uh, no. Um, with Texar, if you want to be field deployable, uh, you got to fulfill your basic requirements. You got to do, um, you know, your NIMS and your ICS and your CPR and leading cert. And then you got, you got to get your wilderness ground search, uh, cert. And then you are field deployable and can do ground sources, ground searches, sorry. And after that, it's a matter of what do you want to do? Do you want to do canine? Do you want to do medical? Do you want to do drone? Do you want to do wilderness fire or vertical? Um, and you can do more than one. Uh, that just means you are making a greater commitment of, of time and money and keeping that stuff up. Um, but the canine handlers are just, you know, they join the team to usually just to do dog stuff. A lot of them, you know, they do, they do the other disciplines too. Um, and, and they're kind of in charge of their own, they're, they're in charge of their dogs, uh, to, to a great degree in terms of, how many they're going to have, um, rotating them, uh, the time and money they're putting into them. And they're often on their own, um, when it comes to, 
uh, paying for veterinary expenses, um, which I think is a, a big reason to have a, a formalized uh, canine operational medicine program is to both reduce risk to the team, also reduce risk to the handler and keep the dogs in service, bring them back to, into service um, more quickly because the, a lot of these canine handlers, like it's like that guy who told me that all of them are single, like they're really serious about this, but I don't think you can take it for granted that, um, every canine handler is going to have the time and money to, uh, have this long rotation of dogs and phases every two years and cycle through them. Uh, and, and you can't, you can't make the assumption that, you know, someone's going to lose a dog, you know, that was a significant investment of time and money as a volunteer and then turn around and you know expect them and they're going to instantly start working on another dog. And even if they do, it takes, I think, something like two years to uh, train and, and get a dog certified. So it's a lengthy process, yeah, which no, is why a- I think prevention, um, preventing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that totally makes sense because you, you, if you look at it dispassionately, you say like, okay, you know, one dog is dies and then you just replace them with another, but that's not how it works because these are family members of these handlers, so it's not like they can just keep a rotation going. And I would assume a lot of them sort of say like, all right, I need a, a year or two of a break before I get another puppy and start training. So um, another question I have, and I think you touched on this a little bit, but the canine handlers themselves – Obviously, like their their passion is probably more towards the training, and then they learn the medical piece to support the dog as a necessity. But I'm assuming, like, if it's not their passion to do the medical piece, then a specialist, somebody that's thinking about this, like you, would be somebody you could rely on. But do you do you find that like the interaction with the dogs themselves and the temperament and the basics around getting the dog calm in the field to let somebody that's not the handler deal with them? Do, do, do you get to actually get hands on with the dog or is it more around you telling the handler what they need to do in a certain situation because they're easier to get access to the dog to do medical treatments? Um. So I, I've responded to one injured dog on a mission and I've, I've had a teammate deal with it. And it's, it seems like more of a collaborative, um, effort in, in both cases, uh, one more so in the, in the second case than, and in, in the one that I was involved with, it wasn't a serious injury. Um, they just said, Hey, we got an injured dog. Can you call one of the medics over and, uh, take a look at the dog and the injury wasn't too serious and we got it, we got it patched up. Um, but I think it's important to explain, to answer your, the first part of your question, it's important to give a little bit of background here. Um, so I did two research projects. The first reset research project was a independent study course that had to be, um, specially authorized by the college, uh, American military university is where I was studying. And um, I had to find a an instructor that was willing to supervise my research, and I got uh, a normal. I got three hours of of, of course credit um, for for that, like a normal class. But I was basically doing a thesis without it being my thesis. In um, that 
that loophole and not being my thesis um, made it easier for me to do what in academic circles is called human research. Uh, you know, not, I'm not running experiments on people. Um, what I was doing and what that term refers to is uh, involving people in my research, doing surveys and interviews. Um, so I did a couple of, of different things, uh, human research elements in that first project. Um, I, like I said I earlier, I identified 10 teams in Texas that I solicited for research. Um, four of them responded. Three of them actually um, participated in my surveys. And uh, the majority of the handlers, um, because Texas are such a big team, I had something like 12 or 13 responses, individual responses just from Texar. Um, so this isn't, that that isn't ideal numbers. Um, you know, this, this wouldn't make it a, um, uh, this wouldn't make it in peer reviewed study. They'd be like, man, the, the numbers are, the numbers are off. Um, there's, there's more you got to do there and you'd have to go through, um, IRB institutional review board. Um, but it's still, the results were basically common sense. Um, I pulled handlers on, uh, what kind of injuries have you seen based on severity? And I pulled them on their background. Uh, and one thing I was curious about is uh, how many of these, there, there's, there's two classes that you can take, a canine first aid class and canine tech, like I talked about earlier. And canine first aid is going to be basic, um, but to my way of thinking, if, if you're trying to be as prepared as possible, you want to be operating at a higher level, especially when you are operating in remote areas where um, help may not be readily available. Um, so how many of them are taking first aid? How many of them are taking tech? And what background do they, do they have? Um, because as I, I mentioned, uh, a layperson, and they do this, canine handler laypersons do this, is they'll go and take that class. But they are learning skills that are typically you know, used by paramedics. And to give your, your listeners some perspective, it took me a few months to get my EMT basic. It takes, it's basically the same amount of time as an associate's degree getting your paramedic. Um, you're at a higher level there. And it, it, you, legally, you learn those skills and you do them on your dog and you're doing them in good faith and not you know, intentionally abusing the animal. Legally, you can do that. Um, and, and that's how a lot of handlers prepare. But from a medical standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, from a risk management standpoint, um, if you were trying to be thorough about this and you know, operate at a, at a degree of excellence, um, you want to have a, a medical capacity for canines that is equivalent to you know, the same kind of medical capacity we have on the human side something closer to what I described law enforcement doing. Um, perhaps, you know, you don't have paramedics because it's not very common in the volunteer side of things, um, but it, at least have people formally trained and, and with medical oversight um, to provide that care. And when I, I surveyed these handlers, um, I found that only a little over 18% of them reported having an EMS certification of EMR uh, or higher. And EMR is a certification that's below EMT basic. And um, as I mentioned, I only saw two out of 10 volunteer teams in Texas um, advertising uh, some kind of, of medical capability. And only a little over 6% of handlers reported having veterinary experience. And 25% uh, said they took tech courses. And 43% said they took um, canine first aid courses. So just to recap there, you're talking 
Not very many of them have human medical experience that could potentially carry over to canines. Even less of them have veterinary experience that's directly relevant to the animals. Um, and you've got, you know, uh, 43% taking these basic courses and a quarter of them taking these really advanced courses that they don't really have the background for. And they can take those classes, like I said, and by law, you can use those skills on your dog. I mean, unless you're, you're obviously abusing it. Um, but from an organizational perspective, if you're trying to provide, you know, um, an excellent level of medical care. There needs to be some structure and oversight, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, you can base this a lot on um, on the structures you see in, in human EMS. And um, it brings me to the other part of uh, my human research. I, when I went out to Vegas to take a, um, uh, a canine tech class, if I can just give a, a shout-out real quick, I, I took my class with... Um, uh, Joanne Brenner and uh, caninemedic.com and uh, her her team collaborated with a veterinary facility that provided us access to ethically sourced cadaver dogs which made um, practicing invasive skills it, that was so incredibly uh, valuable um, when it comes to things like if you know what needle decompression is um, that's a skill that you could learn that on a stuffed animal, but it is not the same thing as doing it on a real dog. And, you know, you're not going to have many opportunities to do that. So getting to practice on a cadaver is just invaluable. And while I was out there, I got to talk with um, Joanne Brenner and some of her uh, some of her other instructors, one of which was a veterinarian. So we had the human EMS side represented there, and we had the veterinary side represented down there. And I had started to come up with an outline of, I th of, of how I thought this problem should be addressed and how do you um, develop a formal uh, canine medical program as opposed to the, just this you know, ad hoc handlers taking a class here and there. And um, I got to sit down with them and get their feedback and um, included that in my research. Uh, and I, I can't... Um, I can't go fully into depth on developing a program um, here, but I can kind of give you um, a bit of an idea of, of what's involved in going from that ad hoc, ad hoc approach to a, a formal approach. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so in EMS, there's a, uh, there's a concept called medical control, which is really important. And um, I know a lot of search and rescue teams, you're probably, you know, only operating with wilderness first aid certifications or maybe wilderness first responder certifications. And, you know, of course, legally, at least in Texas, you can operate at that level um, without any oversight. Um, but it still makes sense, if, especially if your team that has the resources, to have a medical director. And a medical director provides two kinds of oversight. They provide what's called offline medical control, where they basically standardize your protocols, um, what different levels of providers are allowed to do, and how they treat patients you know, in, in certain situations. Um, and then you probably don't see this as much as in, in SAR, uh, but in urban EMS, you have online medical control, where you can... Um, where you call in to get authorization to administer a certain medication, um, or maybe you don't, uh, you're, you're kind of unsure what to do in a situation and you can call and you can get the, uh, the doctor's advice. And there's, um, 
I, I came across a couple of interesting academic articles talking about how in search and rescue, it's this niche area where it's it's kind of the Wild West, where it's just um, wilderness first aid and uh, you know wilderness first responder certifications, and um, you know you can do that, but is it is it is that really striving for excellence? Um, and and these articles argued for um, bringing medical oversight into um, search and rescue. And that's what's involved in creating a creating a um, a canine medical program. So let's say if you if you're a team like Texar and you have medics and you have canine handlers, you could cross train those medics to provide care, and you could train the handlers because no one's going to be more interested in doing dog stuff than the dog guys and girls. Um, uh, you know, they're they're gonna. You're probably gonna get even more participants there than than um, the medics. Um, you may also have uh, a, a lot of teams. Like I said, the majority of the ones I identified, they didn't advertise a human medical capability. Um, so in, in a situation like Texar, where you already have you have a medical team, a human medical team, and you got canines, uh, what you do is you you get your um, human medical director uh, to coordinate and partner with a veterinary doctor. So you have medical control on the human side, you got medical control on the dog side of it, and they get together and they decide, okay, um, we got medics, you know, operating at this level of certification, and then we got handlers, um, they come up with, you know, what we call scope of practice. What skills is, you know, the different level of providers, what are they allowed to do? Um, they, they flesh that out. And then ideally, the, um, the canine med- medical handler, sorry, medical director, is um, providing resources like ethically sourced cadavers and clinical rotations. Um, I did a lot of research on medical skill retention, um, too much to, to, to really delve in here. Um, but the point is that... Um, a lot of the a lot of the studies that I, I I read and you know I cross-referenced them. The conclusion that you know became obvious is that even you know the common practice or a, of of a two or three year research interval on something like a wilderness first aid certification, um, it's it's not adequate, um, and it may seem adequate if you test people after two years, um, you know, with a written test, a multiple choice. Uh, test, um, but didact- retention of didactic knowledge um, does not equate to um, retaining uh, reta- radically ac- adequately retaining um, your ability to actually perform skills. It doesn't equate to competence. Um, they are two different things, and they need to be measured differently. And a big component to making sure that people can actually perform skills um, is to give them quality initial training. Like I mentioned with Canine Medic, that was a fantastic opportunity to work with cadavers. Really helped you understand um, what you're doing there and, and, and how to do it and be confident in it. Um, and then you need an opportunity to practice. Um, you know, that that's where clinical rotations come in. That's where the veterinarian, you know, that director may set, you know, some requirements for uh, continuing education, continuing practice. Um, and, a, and a thing in particular to get experience that I've pitched to, um, that I'm pitching to my team is to develop this into a discipline, just like the medical team, just like the canine team, and offer this service to outside agencies. 
um, that would raise awareness of, of our team, potentially open up new sponsor and, um, and, and grant opportunities. Um, it would also spread awareness of, you know, this, this kind of niche area, one of the last frontiers of medicine, uh, and, and maybe get more people thinking and talking about it and, uh, and adapting it. And, um, I'll say one of the last big pieces here I want to make sure that I, I mentioned is, um, is HEMS, uh, helicopter emergency medicine. Um, so the problem the some, some people may ask, you know, you got a dog, you know, it's doing first responder stuff. It gets in, injured. Why can't you call an ambulance and just ask them to take it to a veterinary medicine, uh, a veterinary hospital? Um, in most states, with the exception of two, and this could have changed since the, the research I read, except for two states, if you uh, are paid to provide medical care um, for an animal and um, you're not licensed to practice veterinary medicine, you could be you run the risk of being charged with practicing veterinary medicine without a license. Even um, in the course of the search so and rescue did. situation. So that's that's where being paid is is what oh, makes the gotcha, difference. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe not even directly charging for it, but being paid, you run the risk of practicing veterinary medicine without a license. And initially, as I was beginning my research, I, I, I thought, well, you know, <laughs> if if you can't do this and get paid, there's there's no way Hems or you know Urban EMS is is going to do this. Um, but uh, <laughs> the loop, the obvious loophole is that um, they can do this, uh, at least in Texas, if they do it for free. And I, I never imagined that would be a thing, but it is. Um, here in Houston, we have Memorial Herman and Memorial Herman Life Flight. And I attended one of their um, Red Duke trauma symposiums and got to meet with the head of their newly formed canine tech program. And um, this this is a program where they where they cross trained life flight medics and nurses um, to adapt their skills to providing care for canines. And you know the obvious application there is police dogs. That's what most people would think about. Um, but when I got a chance to talk with them and and um, said you know hey this is this is who I work with this is what we do if one of our dog dogs got injured you know um, would you be willing to help us and absolutely um, they they will transport an injured working dog free of charge within a particular service area I forget how big it is but it's relatively it's a relatively big radius. Um, not compared to the whole state of Texas, but it's it's pretty significant. And they have partnered with four different um, veterinary hospitals um, so that they can, you know, take their helicopter in and land it and um, deliver a dog to them if if a working dog, whether it's police or search and rescue, gets in, injured. And I don't think this is very common knowledge. Um, and in doing my Doing my research, I came across studies that referenced this database called Adams, and it was a database of air medical providers, and it provided a lot of information that was useful for um, for studying things related to HEMS. And there was one study in particular that was a study on how many um, how many HEMS agencies had transported uh, canines, and um, 
I don't have those figures on hand. I, I would have thought the number was zero, but it wasn't. There was actually a significant number that had transported canines and some that even had written policies on how uh, on what's involved in this and policies and procedures, um, that kind of thing. Unfortunately, that database, um, it no longer exists. I tried to access it for myself, and it, it doesn't seem to exist anymore. Um, so another thing that I've pitched to my team that I think is an important component of building a, a canine medical program after you've got that canine medical director is to, uh, we'll have to do our own research. Um, basically do our research, reach, reach out, use the internet, um, talk to regional offices of emergency management and try to get, perhaps get assistance from them, uh, and identify, um, HEMS providers in, in our service area, which in our case is the whole state of Texas. That's a lot of area. Um, but it would take time. But if we map this out and identify all these providers and reach out to them and, um, ask, Hey, you know, we got a working dog that goes down. Are you willing to transport and build out a list, build out a map of these? A map would be very useful for what we call medical incident planning. Before a mission, you do medical incident planning to plan for the what if so you're not scratching your head and panicking when something happens. Yeah. And if we have, if we build our own database like that, a map, that would be critical. And, and, um, t- and groups like, uh, um, Life flight. They're going above and beyond just transporting. Um, they're also doing training. And, you know, if you have an agency approach them and say, "Hey, we've got working dogs. We're trying to get prepared on the medical side. Will you train us?" Um, they have training available. Um, in, in my opinion, from the research I've done, that's that's great. It's still not a replacement for having a, a medical director. And if you have human EMS, you know, having that that combo. If not, just having that that veterinary doctor. Um, but it's it's a great start. Even if you know someone from a small team is listening, and it's like four or five people with the dogs, and they don't have you know the kind of resources that you know uh, I'm talking about. It would still be great if you just you know did a little bit of googling and uh, identified HEMS providers in your um, working area and reached out to them and say find out hey what do you what do you do will you transport our dogs do you provide any training and you may even get free training from them and especially if you're a small team with less resources um, that could be very helpful. Yeah, and I think that it's it's an important area to think about, and it's not something that I think is thought about too often. I feel like in your area down in Texas, you probably the the use cases for search and rescue are probably more heavily heavily reliant on dogs than maybe up here in New Hampshire. But it is a good thing for us to be thinking about and for. Um, you know, to just sort of talk about because it's just not something that you consider. You sort of figure like, okay, if the dog gets injured, we're going to just pick him, pick the dog up and take him to the local veterinary. But in, in New Hampshire, small, so like that may be viable. But it, what you're talking about in Texas, like you're, you could be. I'm just like looking at a map as you're talking, and I'm just looking at the distance between Houston and say like Beaumont, Texas, and then north of there, you've got. Sam Houston National yeah. Forest, you've got um, Angelina National Forest, Davy Crockett National Forest. I mean, those areas are huge. I mean, those that, those comprise almost the entire state of Massachusetts. So yeah. the the distance you're talking about is crazy. Yeah, I was looking up some data here. Texas is 29 times bigger than New Hampshire. Wow. So and, you're talking here, like, yeah, 
It's just massive. Here, here's another use case you may not have thought of. Um, this wasn't directly relevant to my research, but I thought it was interesting. I want to say this is this is someplace in California. I want to say I don't remember for sure, but I read online. You can probably Google it and find it about a a team of volunteers that they're they're basically uh, dogs are. Um, so they got hikers that, you know, you, you get hikers, you know, going down tra- up trails, you know, in their flip flops and no water you know, that that aren't prepared. And uh, those same people um, are often bringing animals with them. And then the animal gets out there, gets its paw injured. It gets, you know, its leg injured, falls, uh, gets scraped on something, starts to overheat and they're not equipped. And I can't remember what city this was in, but I want to say it was California. I read about a team that um, I don't know what their level of training was, but they they trained to go out and assist uh, hikers on on these trails when they you know aren't prepared and they bring a, a pet out there that just isn't prepared to uh, uh, prepared for the adventure. Yeah, we've had a number of episodes where we've highlighted this because what happens in in New Hampshire is that like we have very sharp rocks and it's. Um, pretty common, not common, but it's, it happens relatively consistently a couple times a year where um, a, a hiker will bring typically large breed dogs that will, you know, their paws will get torn up and they'll be in a place where they can't um, continue. And search and rescue does not, um, search and rescue does not uh, by policy come and to save the dog. So it's volunteer like usually it's over social media where they'll mobilize teams to come out and sort of carry the dogs out. And there's a product called Pack-A-Paw, which is a sling that allows people yeah. to carry the dogs. And um, it's relatively common. I think we've had probably about four or five of those rescues over the last couple of years since we've been doing the show um, where dogs have gotten in trouble. So right now in New Hampshire, there's a small group that's starting up that's a volunteer search and rescue specifically to come out and, and help with animals. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Ken, this has been, uh, this has been fascinating. Stop. Is there any other questions that you have that you want to cover? Yeah, just briefly. So I was rifling through the, uh, techsar.org website. It's uh, very impressive. I was looking at some of the numbers. So you guys have 230 active personnel statewide. And five, what is it, five divisions or branches? Yes, yeah, we're, we're, we're statewide. Okay, so and we, 125 are labeled as wilderness SAR technicians. So up here in uh, the Northeast, we generally do what they call is a, a shakedown, where we take them out and um, take them on a vigorous hike and this and that. Do you guys do anything similar for the, the wilderness search and rescue? So our... our um our process has has changed. Um, I wasn't here when the team was started, but my my understanding of the lore, if you will, is it started out as one team that got the idea to uh, unite individual SAR teams across Texas into something bigger, and um, it it has it it's gotten more professional over time. Um, understandably, you start out with an endeavor like that, that it takes time, but we've gotten more and more professional. And at, at this point, um, you have 
you have, like I said, you have the minimum requirements. Um, yeah. You 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 got to be willing to do the really dry, boring NIMS and ICS stuff. And we get a lot of people right. that they come to one or two meetings. They're all gung ho about it. They pay the membership fee, and then they never complete that stuff. And that stuff is free. It's just super dry, and it, it, it yeah. takes some time. Um, mm. Then you got to do your wilderness first aid, uh, not your wilderness first aid. You got to take your your wilderness ground search class. And once you do that, um, there is a a probationary period. Um, which is something that we've implemented. Um, try to get them out. Try to get new members out on searches, and um, you know, try to pair them up with more uh, experienced team members. Um, I've gotten to mentor um, yeah, a few a few young men that have have joined the team. Um, that was that was rewarding. Um, and and then of course you know you you show yourself that you're competent. You know you stay you stay calm. Um, behave yourself, act professionally, and um, and then you make it out of that probationary period. So there's not gotcha. necessarily a wilderness shakedown. You know, there is a practical exercise component to uh, that that um, basic required wilderness ground search class. And there's ongoing training after that. Um, but there's not really a take them out to Big Bend on a seven-day hike, you know, through the desert kind of thing. No, that's, that's not... Um, a requirement at this point. Do you, um, what's your turnover like? And I, I, I want to tie that to, um, is, is Texas in general, uh, properly served by volunteer search and rescue or is it underserved? Um, do you have a high turnover in members or, um, I mean, so I also I noticed, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. I, this may be a little off topic, but, um, no, it, it's insight? an interesting question. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't have specific insight into the, the s- specific stats for our team. And if I did, I'm, I'm not sure if that's something they would want me to share. No, However, I, I, ha- I, I can tell you that I have heard, you know, more than one um, division leader or instructor uh, say that the average lifespan of a volunteer is, um, I want to say, three years. So as I mentioned before, you get these new people that come in that they're all gung ho and they don't, they don't do the basic classes and and then they just, they, they just disappear. That's the majority of people. Then you get, you know, then you get less people that actually follow through with that, actually go on missions. Um, and then a lot of those after three years, they'll either move because of their job or they'll have, you know, kids, um, and it's it's very important to have a, a supportive spouse in this, um, and I, I've I've yeah. heard that from from canine handlers. Um, yeah. It's very important to have a supportive spouse. I've been fortunate that mine, even after we <laughs> have had our first kid, um, she's about to turn one. Um, yeah. She's she's still supportive of of me me staying involved with this. Um, but a yeah. lot of folks, for whatever re- reason, either because of life changes or burnout. Sure. They, they drop off, and then you've got like a few hardcore people that um, that just keep going and going and going. Yeah, 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 yeah. I could ask you a million questions because I I'm in volunteer star myself. Um, I guess just for time, I'll ask you one other thing. I noticed that a lot of the handlers, according to your data here, um, it, it would look as though you're talking about two dogs per handler. Is that accurate? Uh, I don't have. 
I, I don't have a number on on dogs per handler. Um, yeah. I don't have that. I, I can tell you that I a lot of them have had at least two. Like I yeah. said, the seer the the ones that have been doing this a while, um, and you you get you get new folks that show up that are interested in it, and they have a dog that's a pet, you know, which pets are great, and they're interested in doing it, and they don't really understand how much work is involved in it, and they'll probably drop off. Um, yeah. Then you've got some folks that, that won't drop off, and they'll stick with it, um, but they may not get to the level of the folks I've been talking about that have done this for years, the the ones that are single that um, that have that train rotations of dogs. They train one dog, wait two years, start bringing up another dog, wait two years, start bringing up another dog, and then you got this full rotation. And then when That's a dog amazing. gets to a certain age, um, it's called a. Uh, it's often used as a confirmation dog. Um, so when a dog ages out and it's it's not physically capable of. Um, of, of doing the more strenuous work, um, you'll use it as a confirmation dog where you'll have one or two other dogs, maybe more, uh, hit on a scent. Um, but those dogs aren't as, uh, as seasoned as this dog. And maybe they don't have the reputation, the, the, the track record of performance that this one does. And you'll bring the confirmation dog out to see if the confirmation dog uh, hits on a scent there. And if the confirmation dog hits on it, you know you should take it seriously. If he doesn't, um, it, it's, it's probably, you know, it's probably a mistake. <laughs> That's great. Ken, thank you so much. It's been super interesting. And yeah, eventually we get to get you up into the mountains of New Hampshire. They're not super tall, but they are, um, they're very frisky and difficult. So um, I feel like Texas is super flat. Uh, my, my my dad grew up there, and he's he's told me stories from his childhood of hunting and getting into trouble. And uh, he had property out there for a while, but he sold it. And uh, so, yeah, I, I got an excuse to go out there. It'd be fun. Amazing. Well, this has been fantastic. So, uh, thank you very much for your service as a volunteer SR, and uh, pass pass on a thank you to the team members, and uh, appreciate your time joining us tonight. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know they are? Lieutenant James Neeland from New Hampshire Fishing Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would.